0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1623, seven years after the death of Shakespeare, two men compiled a set of Shakespeare's works. He was a happy imitator of nature, they wrote in a note to readers, and a most gentle expressor of it. Read him, therefore, and again and again, and if then you do not like him surely you are in some manifest danger not to understand him. And so we leave you to other of his friends, whom, if you need, can be your guides. If you need them not, you can lead yourselves and others, and such readers we wish him." The readers of Shakespeare, the actors, the directors, the admirers, the scholars, the obsessed fans, the reluctant schoolchildren, those who have been inspired— "'Shakespeare's friends and guides all owe a debt to these two men with their humble project. "'We pray you do not envy his friends,' they said, referring to themselves and describing the care and pain with which they collected and published his plays. Before you were abused with surreptitious copies, maimed and deformed by frauds. We did it to perform an office to the dead.' they said, to give guardians to his orphaned plays without ambition either of self-profit or fame, only to keep the memory of so worthy a friend and fellow alive as was our Shakespeare. The compilation, called the First Folio, did a service to Shakespeare but also to the world. Without this book, we would not have the Shakespeare we know today. It was an improbable book with a legacy impossible to have foreseen. And this year, it turns 400, giving us the chance to look back on the four centuries that span a playwright at the globe and a global response. We'll talk to Professor Emma Smith of the University of Oxford, one of the world's leading experts in Shakespeare and the remarkable literary milestone, The First Folio, today on The History of Literature okay here we go everyone welcome to the podcast i'm jack wilson thank you for joining me today emma smith will be here soon she's written two books about the first folio i will ask her about both I went to see a copy of the first folio here in Washington, D.C. The Folger Library is really a champion when it comes to first folios. They have 82 of them, something like that, about a third of the known surviving copies. Their building currently is closed, but they put one on display, a first folio on display, and a library in downtown D.C., and I went, I, I kind of thought there would be crowds of people... <laughs> For some reason, as I was on the train, I thought, oh, I bet a lot of these people are going to get off the train when I do and go see the first folio. But no, I was the only one there, save the librarian who helpfully pointed me toward a glass case in a corner. It was spectacular. What a treat that was. It took my breath away to see this book. I recorded a bunch of audio of my trip thinking I would share it with you, but it was so... Uh, Frankly, it was so embarrassing, I can't bring myself to include the reports. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes I get a little carried away. Okay, luckily, I have a calmer head to prevail. Emma Smith is such a wonderful person to talk to. She was here before to discuss her book, Portable Magic, which is a book all about books in their physical form. Not the text, that is, but the pages and, and spines and and art and the magic and mystery that surround books as physical objects and as a device for well what what should we say exactly a device for communication art spiritual awakening and sometimes horrors books can be powerful for ill as well as good but today we celebrate the good not just the good the great even, one might argue, the best. This first folio saved about half of Shakespeare's plays from almost certain obscurity, but now I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's bring out the expert, Emma Smith, to tell us all about what this book is and why it's so important. And then, because we are generous here at the History of Literature, we're going to throw in a little bonus content. We'll hear from Luke Parker, expert in Nabokov, to see what Luke would choose as his last book. Will he take Lolita or Penin or Glory or something else? Pale Fire, maybe? Or select a different author altogether? We will find out. But first, we'll find out about Shakespeare and the first folio. Emma Smith is next. <laughs> Okay. Joining me once again is Emma Smith, professor of Shakespeare studies at Oxford University, who was here before to discuss her book, Portable Magic, a book about books rather than words. She's here today to discuss one of the world's greatest books, which also contains some of the world's greatest words, Shakespeare's first folio, which turns 400 this year. She's written two books about Shakespeare's first folio, The Making of Shakespeare's First Folio, and Shakespeare's First Folio, four centuries of an iconic book. Emma Smith, welcome back to the history of literature.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So let's start with the first folio itself. What exactly is it?
1: The first folio is the first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays. So it's published posthumously. As you said, it's 400 years old this year, published in 1623, seven years after Shakespeare died in 1616. And it includes 36 plays, not the poems or the sonnets, but for half of the plays that it prints, it's the only witness to them. It's the only text Mm. that we have.
0: Right. And those plays, which often I read it or I hear it said that those plays could have been lost forever... And they include plays like Macbeth and Antony and Cleopatra and Julius Caesar and The Tempest. And we really owe a lot to this first folio.
1: We absolutely do. The majority of plays from this whole period of theatrical history have not survived. And that's because their life, you know, their purpose was to be performances, not to be books. Mm-hmm. So, had these not been put in a book, they wouldn't have survived. And even the plays that we would still have by Shakespeare, you know, for example, we would have a text of Hamlet, but without the kind of weight that the folio gives, that the complete works of Shakespeare, I don't think we would even be able to recognize how great that play is. We wouldn't have the same attitude to Shakespeare without these plays and without this book. Mm. So,
0: since it was put together after Shakespeare had died, who was working on it? How did it come to be?
1: I think of The First Folio as a collaboration between the theatre, on the one hand, and the London publishing industry, on the other. So the men from the theatre are two fellow actors of Shakespeare's. They're called John Hemming and Henry Condell. And actually, in March 1616, we see them mentioned in Shakespeare's will just a few weeks before he dies, when he leaves money for them to buy mourning rings, rings rings to remember him by. Mm. And lots of people have wondered whether either explicitly or perhaps just tacitly there was a sense that they owed him a more lasting monument, which would be the the gathering together of his literary works. So they are one side of this project. But the other side is the publishers, Isaac Jaggard and Edward Blunt. No book gets published without publishers thinking it's worth doing. You know, no work of literature really in the modern printing age has got out to readers without somebody in that business world taking Mm. a risk Mm -hmm. on it investing in it. And the same is true here. So these are men who are looking, I guess, at at the economics as well as the literary value of Shakespeare. So I I feel as if it's born from two things, really, perhaps affection and emotional ties on the one hand and business and investment ideas on the other.
0: So this wasn't a situation with a patron. This was a book they thought they could make some money from?
1: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, it is dedicated to noblemen, but there's no sense that they put any money behind it. I think it is pitched as a book that will sell, but not with absolute confidence. Mm. Uh, Those two actors, John Hemmings and Henry Condell, write a letter, an epistle at the beginning of the book, addressed to the great variety of readers. And what they keep saying through that is, please buy this book, buy this book. Mm. Read and censure, they say do so, but buy it first, whatever you do, buy. So they are, I think, betraying a little bit of nervousness about whether this is an absolutely sort of sale-worthy object at this point. And that may be because I think, I mean, I think we can think of lots of equivalents in our own time of artists whose reputation probably is at its lowest point in the few years after they have died. They're not current, they're not fashionable, they're not topical, and nor are they old enough for people to come round at them a second time, you know, and give them that kind of vintage quality. For me, it's a bit of a doldrum for Shakespeare's reputation, and it's the belief of these theatre men and publishing men that this is going to work out as a business proposition that really preserves Shakespeare for us.
2: Mm.
0: And did they think theatre-goers would like it, or...? university students or producers and actors of plays would maybe want to take a look at it and see if there was anything in there that they could mount on the stage? Or do we have a sense of who they thought could shell out
1: the money for this? It's a really great question, because one of the things about this book, in fact, it's the thing that's denoted by calling it a folio, is that it's a big book. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you looked at it on the desk, you think that's a Bible or that's an encyclopedia or something. So it's a big, heavy book. And one consequence of that is it looks like a book for the study.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It looks like something quite serious. You would need to rest it on a desk. You're not going to be having this in your pocket and just having a quick look at it, as you might have done with the single-play pamphlets we call quartos. Some of those are published during Shakespeare's lifetime, and they're a much more ephemeral almost throwaway kind of commodity. But this is a big, hefty, serious object. And so there is a paradox to it. It preserves Shakespeare's plays. And without it, Shakespeare's reputation would have been very different. And as we've already said, we wouldn't have these extraordinary texts. But it also begins the divorce between these plays and the theatre. And Mm -hmm. really takes a step to establish them as things to read, study, enjoy, dwell on, but also perhaps find hard work rather than an afternoon at the theatre, which was their sort of predominant mode before this. So the people who buy it then, I think, are people who are buying largely for their library. It's not a very easy book to use for performance, although we've got some evidence that that occasionally that was done. But these are mostly pretty well-to-do people who are buying this as as part of a larger reading library. And there may have been an overlap with theatre-goers, but it's not completely clear. Right. And just how unusual was this?
0: I I read somewhere that Ben Johnson had a collection of plays. And I don't know how similar that is to the first folio. But was the first folio basically the the first of its kind? Or did we see this with other playwrights as well?
1: The Ben Johnson folio is, is really interesting. If this book, I said this book has got sort of two parents, the theatre and the publishing industry. And if it could have had three, I think the third would probably be Ben Johnson's folio. Mm. Because Johnson, who is Shakespeare's friend, rival, uh, fellow dramatist, he has produced his own collection of works in this folio format printed in 1616. And that is a real first. It's a first for uh, English play texts to be published in this serious seeming format but Johnson also includes poetry he writes quite a lot of poetry and his court entertainments which are called masks so there is a difference in the Shakespeare folio which has left out all of shakespeare's poetry probably because it it doesn't seem relevant to the theatre men who have been involved in putting it together i think johnson is an influence it's an influence on the the sort of layout and the possibility and it's just it's possible that hearing that johnson was preparing his works in this way may have encouraged shakespeare before he died to think of it for his own works too
2: mm-hmm. Mhm.
0: So and maybe to have suggested to the two who ended up working on it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And Ben Johnson is very visible in the first folio he writes. In fact, the first words of this text are actually a poem by Ben Johnson, which is opposite the title page. Uh, And then there's a longer poem by Johnson as part of the introductory material to this book. So he has a role to play. Some people have felt uh, it's a bigger role than I've just outlined in getting this book of Shakespeare's plays into print.
0: Right. Now, what kind of a task was it? Because if we're talking about Ben Johnson and he's alive, he's presumably has his own scripts or can recreate what he needs to recreate and so on. But I gather that Shakespeare didn't leave behind a kind of rough draft of working papers or anything like that that they would be able to pull from. So how did they get the plays?
1: It's a Really, really great question, and we don't completely know, so for half of the plays, they have been printed before
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so there are print copies, but many of those print copies have been marked up perhaps with some additions or corrections or something in order to be reset for this folio volume. But for half of the plays, we've got no printed copies, so probably what John Hemming and Henry Condell contributed was the access to playhouse copies. So it's probably important to remember that a playwright like Shakespeare in this period is not writing really for himself or his own literary archive or his own literary posterity. He's writing scripts for a theatre, and those scripts are pretty much the property of that theatre. They become part of the kind of repertory of plays that the theatre can put on. So Hemings and Condell probably bring these scripts of the unpublished plays from the theatre. And I think once we start to remind ourselves that Shakespeare's plays were originally what we would now call scripts, that immediately for me makes them a bit more fluid, a bit less fixed and a bit less final, more a kind of instruction or an Mm. enabler for performance rather than a text primarily for reading. And so some of the differences and questions there are about Shakespeare's texts in print probably come from the sense that the underlying scripts, none of which have survived, were working documents in the theatre. And they were documents that probably did get updated when the play was revived new jokes, a different actor playing a particular role might have a slightly different take on it. Maybe it needed to be shorter. Maybe there was one aspect that didn't seem quite so relevant anymore. So those scripts that come from the theatre are probably, as I say, documents that have a sense of the play as a moving property rather than a fixed text. Mm. You know,
0: that's something I've never really thought about before. We have such a paradigm for our view of the theater where you, the playwright would write out or type up a script in today's world and then print out copies for all the actors and they would memorize their lines and then show up at rehearsal and then maybe you'd make a few changes there based on what you hear from them or what you see as the play is acted out and so on, but I never really thought about how Someone would have been teaching the actors their lines or it would have been more oral instruction. They couldn't have easily made copies of all of the written works. But there must have been some element of teaching that would, you know, anything communicated orally might have changed kind of during that process. And we wouldn't have a record of how things had changed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're so right. I think that it's really good to remind ourselves that actors in this period never saw the whole script as a written document. They got their own parts, what are called cue scripts. So they got the lines that they were going to deliver, plus the two or three words that was the cue they needed to listen to Mm -hmm. in order to get that. So you're right that there aren't copies of the plays circulating, just being able to print out or run off on a photocopier has made us much more careless, hasn't it? If you had to copy out each of the documents that you, you know, sort of distribute, you'd probably be a bit more circumspect (laughs) about how many really needed to have one.
0: You need to have a few monks on staff.
1: Exactly. There was a scribe. There was most definitely a scribe in the theatre who was doing office work at this time was to be a scribe, you know, copying things out. But you're also, I think, really interesting about the role of the play script or the play text in in our modern theatre. Because at that point, you just described when the, the playwright gives out the script to the actors, probably at that same point, they send the script to be published as a book to coincide or maybe they already have done to coincide with the performance you know so you can buy the script when you go to the theater but that script then won't take account of the things that have been changed during rehearsals so the script will already on the very first night of rehearsals in most cases be slightly different from the words that you hear if you go to the theater and that's i think anybody who's involved in theater recognizes that's part of the the magic of it and i think if you're a playwright you have to accept that, that your every last word and every last phrase as you have written it is not going to find its way uninterrupted into the theatre. That's just not how it works.
0: Right. And then we get the first folio, which kind of preserves these words and gives them a kind of formality, a kind of heft or a kind of imprimatur stamped on them, although Shakespeare didn't get a chance to review it and endorse and everything like that. But I gather that scholars can also find some earlier examples or some later examples and kind of have come to view the first folio as what you'd call it, an excellent starting point and maybe with revisions to the first folio based on some other sources we generally are on our way to having something that we feel comfortable is, is pretty close to what Shakespeare would have written.
1: I think that whole question of what Shakespeare would have written and what we're trying to get back to in those kinds of discussions is just such a fascinating one. So are we trying to get back to the play as it was first performed? And we've already sort of talked a bit about how that might not be exactly the way the writer had written it down. Once the actors get hold of it, once it's there in performance, it changes a bit. Do we think that an author like Shakespeare can change his mind? And in that case, do we Mm. think the first draft... Or the latest one is the most relevant. Mm, Yeah, are we looking at the plays as the theatre company of the King's Men have kept them updated so that they are current for performance, or are we trying to get back to how this play was performed in the autumn of fifteen ninety five or something? Right. It's a really, really fascinating question. What we are trying to get to, and in some ways, it boils down to whether we think Shakespeare is a playwright in a collaborative mode like the theatre, or really if he's a poet, Mm -hmm. we would think about a poet, yes, every word they have chosen is absolutely the word, and you couldn't possibly change it. I don't think we would think that even now about about a playwright necessarily.
0: Right, but we would tend to value Shakespeare's ideas more than, let's say, a, a director who wanted to cut things for time or or some anonymous actor who doesn't like the way some of his words sound coming out of his mouth and they make changes to it or something like that. We would want it to be as close to the original source as possible, but on the other hand, how do you know that this wasn't a change that Shakespeare himself thought, oh yeah, that's better, or I have a, a better idea for this, or I think this is dragging on a little too long, let's tighten it up and, and so on.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a really good example in King Lear. So King Lear was printed as a single pamphlet play in 1608. So quite relatively close to the time when it was performed before King James. And then it's published again in the 1623 folio. And these are different texts. They're different in Hundreds of small ways, you know, a word changed or, or or something, and then in some larger ways, you know, whose speeches are given to, some scenes that are in one version not the other, and so on. We've had lots of goes at explaining why are these two texts different, and if we could work that out, then we would say, well, which is the right one, you know, which is mm. the nearest. Uh, to Shakespeare. And I think what most scholars, although not everybody, has come to think is these are both Shakespearean plays and they represent the life of a play called King Lear at different points and one might be a version for one context. And the other is one that Shakespeare continues to work on. Maybe he's not quite satisfied with it. Maybe he has something particular in mind where he needs King Lear to be performed again in in a slightly different way. But we've come to think, which is one of the things that the first folio maybe threw us off a bit, we've come to think that Shakespeare did revise his own plays, whereas what Heming and Condell tell us... In the beginning of the first folio is that he didn't, and that he mm. wrote like a genius. It just popped fully formed out of his head uh, onto the paper, and they say, we have never had a blot on his papers, you know, there's been no second thoughts, no crossings out, no revising. Now, that seems probably unlikely to be true, but it began a myth about that made sort of Shakespeare's writing practices seem different from every other writer there had ever been in the world Who right. You ever see writers drafts and manuscripts, you see the craft and the time that it takes to draft and redraft and, and get the right word or get the right structure.
0: Right. And didn't Ben Johnson say, I wish there were a few blots?
1: Yeah, Woody had blotted a thousand. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah, Johnson was really one of those. um, They didn't have the word frenemy, but I think he kind of was one of those friend-enemy figures. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'll introduce another wrinkle to this. My understanding is that when they were printing the first folio, it would take so long for a copy to make its way through the press that they would find typographical errors and so on, and they would just correct them. So a later copy 750 might be in better shape than copy number one of the first folio.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the only kind of proofreading, proof correction, that the folio seems to have had is what we call stop press correction. Mm. It's a slightly misleading term, because what actually happens is maybe the first impression of a particular page of type comes off the press, and it's given to someone in the print room to check. But while they're checking it, the press keeps going. So they continue uh, to print uncorrected versions of the sheet. And then when the person comes back with corrections, they stop the press, open it up, open up the case that's got the type in it, make the changes, tie it all back down again, you know, firm it all up and carry on. So that means that for the corrected pages in the first folio, any copy of this book will have. Really, a random combination of corrected and uncorrected. Oh, so
2: right, it's not right. true
1: that copy number one is all, right. and copy seven fifty all right. It, they are all a mixture, <laughs> and even this is partly because time is money, as we know, but also money is money, and the money that was really heavily invested in printing went on paper. Paper was a really high cost. In this period. So even the copy that had been checked over and marked up with corrections, even that paper was not thrown away, it was just put in the pile with the others. So we now know of six marked up with corrections sheets in copies of the first folio. So they show us how the book was corrected, and they also show us, which anybody who's been involved in proofreading any document will recognise, that if you correct an error, you usually make another one <laughs> in the you know, in the course of doing it. So some, there's something right. else you don't see, or you push something else out, or something like that. So we see this is a book with millions of words and with thousands of errors that's just the way of it just you know just as it would be but it it is kind of fascinating to see the work that's been done not consistently through the whole book but particularly on the tragedies uh, the last section of the book that's been done to uh, to check it over for errors right and they missed a couple of plays or plays
0: that we believe now were written by shakespeare I guess, Cardinio and Love's Labour's One. Do we know why they missed those? Were those not attributed to Shakespeare in, in their time?
1: We don't know. So these two plays, there's evidence that they did exist and that they were by, or at least in part by Shakespeare, but they have not been printed and therefore they don't survive. But there are two plays, at least in part by Shakespeare, that were printed elsewhere but not in the folio. Mm. Uh, so Pericles and the two noble kinsmen. So those two are left out of the folio for some reason. And we know, uh, we talked before about how they got hold of the copy to print from. If other stationers, other publishers had already printed uh, copies of some of the plays, they weren't always all that happy to give up the rights. You mm. know, they, some of them were quite a hard bargain. And there's a man called Henry Wally who owns the rights to Troilus and Cressida, and he really plays hardball, so much so that the folio printers have prepared and printed copies of the, the catalogue page, the list of the plays included, and they've left Troilus and Cressida off it because they just don't think they're going to get it. Mm. And then they do for some reason, and and so they slot in this play, which has no page numbers because it was it's kind of out of sequence. But when they think they're not going to get Troilus and Cressida, they bring in another play to fill up the space, and that play is Tymon of Athens. Mm. So they obviously knew that Tymon of Athens was partly by Shakespeare. We mostly now think it's partly by Shakespeare and partly by Thomas Middleton. They knew it was there, but they weren't going to include it until there was this kind of snafu with Troilus and Cressida. So that insight for me makes it look as if perhaps they are marginalizing some of those plays that they know to have been jointly written with other authors. Mm. They are focusing, although not entirely, the first folio on sole authorship.
0: Right. And what was the copyright Scenario, how did one get the rights to a play? Had Shakespeare sold them, or is this a publishing phenomenon where people can stake a claim to one as long as they're first? Or how does that work?
1: The system of copyright sort of hardly exists, but there's a system of rights to publish which is overseen by the stationer's company. Mm. And they have a, a register in which they encourage their members to lodge their. Right to print certain books. So at the point when they, a stationer agrees with an author or another agent that they're going to publish a particular text, they write their claim to that in the stationer's register. And that's one of the places that can be referred back to if, if there's a case of dispute. And sometimes there are disputes and the stationer's company steps in and says, yeah, actually, this guy had the pre-ownership of it so all your copies are going to be burnt Mm. you've usurped the the rights to publish there
0: Mm. okay well let's take a quick break and then come back with more about the first folio including how it's been used for the last 400 years Okay, we're back. Emma Smith, what happened next to Shakespeare from a publishing standpoint? Were there subsequent folios or did the individual plays start to become published and more widely available? Would you say that the the market was flooded or did the first folio kind of stand as the only thing we had from Shakespeare in terms of a, a book you could buy for some amount of time?
1: I think what the first folio does is to establish the collected Shakespeare as a dominant publishing format. Mm. So what we get in the rest of the 17th century is a second, third, and fourth edition of this same book. There Mm -hmm. is some circulation of individual play texts, but not so much. In fact, probably the existence of these big collected editions really restricts the, the ability of the of the plays to circulate individually. And that happens all through the fourth folio is in the date of that is 1685. So all through the rest of the 17th century, Shakespeare exists in versions of this big single volume folio book. And then as the century turns, as we get into the 1700s, then we have a century really of editors, Editors start to look at these plays. They want to answer questions about how they're Mm. interpreted and uh, what's the correct reading, what's more Shakespearean, uh, what was the life of Shakespeare, what kinds of things did he read to produce these plays. And so we start what is one of the most sort of energetic sectors of 18th century publishing is very contentious and sort of rivalrous Shakespeare editions. And these are mostly. Again, complete works, but this time in multiple small volumes, much more manageable, much more readable. And that's the format in which Shakespeare really circulates through the 18th century. And all through that period, so from the time when the second edition of the Folio comes out, nine years after the first in 1632, right through to the end of the 18th century, and in addition by someone like Edmund Malone. All through that period, copies of the first folio, the 1623 book that we are celebrating this year, were really not that desirable. The first folio was a sort of second-hand book. It was Mm. not a, a rare or a valuable book. It sold for a lower price than one of the new modern editions. And we know of quite a number of owners Who trade in for a later version, thinking that that's a better. Right. more modern, up-to-date thing to have. <laughs> like a <Including>, car. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. The car analogy is absolutely right. You know, I th- I've i been thinking that the first folio is a bit like a car, that when you drive it off the forecourt, you know, it's lost a third <laughs> of its value or something. And I think that's that happens with this book, too.
0: Right. And I, I read even the Bodleian, of all places, sold off their copy of the first folio when the third folio came out.
1: Yeah, this is such an embarrassment to the poor Bodleian, which is my, (laughs) you know, my university library in a completely wonderful place. Yeah, but they too, they were treating the first folio a bit more like a medical textbook or a legal Mm -hmm, textbook. mm -hmm. You know, if you had the chance of a new updated version, you'd jump at it, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want people to be consulting some outdated old thing. They think of this volume of plays as having been sort of perfected and improved by being redone and newer. Whereas, in fact, what happens in those versions is although some things do get improved, the standard of Uh, bits and pieces of Latin, for example, is much higher in the later folio. Somebody has had a look at that and tidied it all up. But in other ways, it's just like any form of resetting, retype setting, and reprinting. It's just introduced more mistakes.
2: Mm.
0: And this is jumping ahead a little bit, but I also am wondering just the first folio, it's got this aura around it because it was the earliest in the first, but it's not quite the same as it would be if it were handwritten by Shakespeare, for example. So I could see where you would think, oh, well, they've improved this, so let's not expose our audience or our our readers and and the scholars who are working here. Let's not expose them to the earlier one, which presumably has more mistakes and so on, but we'll get a a nice new copy of the improved one for them to work with.
1: Absolutely. When you look at it like that, you think in a way that's what a library should be doing, keeping up to date, keeping material up to date. But it just turned out to be a, a wrong call. They did get the book back after it turned up and they launched what was Actually, in UK higher education, the first ever fundraising campaign from former students to try and buy this book so that it didn't go to the, I'm quoting here, of course, fabulously rich, sort of money mad Americans. It was a time at which, in the life of these books, where they were really very, very desirable for super rich men who'd made a lot of money in American industry at the end of the 19th into the 20th century. They're real Gilded Age kind of objects, first folios, in that world. And the Bodleian is trying to keep this particular copy and get it back home to Oxford, which it does manage to do. It is a little less interesting to me
0: once it became such a collector's item that it was kind of the subject of auctions and and so on. And what I love are the copies that you were tracing for your book that would have annotations or markings or, or a sense that this was just a, a book in a library or a book in someone's private collection, but they were really using it, that it was them taking in Shakespeare and seeing what was there rather than, oh, this is a good investment or this is I'll I'll own one of the rarest things in the world or or something like that. But what were you finding as you were tracing the individual copies for your book?
1: I absolutely agree with you. I love that period, that first century probably of the life of these books is a century in which they circulate pretty well in sort of well-to-do, but not by any means super-rich households. And we can see that people make marks in them. They are sometimes doing corrections or hmm. uh, improvements or something as they see it to the text. Sometimes they're just kind of doodling uh, in the margin. There's a wonderful copy where a little girl called Elizabeth Oakle, we know that because she's put her name on it at the beginning of the 18th century, draws a house with a chimney and uh, some sort of smoke <laughs> puffing out of it uh, right. in, a, in a lovely bit of white space at the bottom of one of the pages. There are A couple of my favourites are the number of copies that have um a cat's paw uh, walking across the book um <laughs> or one of those really telltale you know the circle that's round the foot of a wine glass
2: mm, yeah
1: there's one of those in one of our library copies, which I enjoy very much, the idea that you would have put your – this is a big book and you might have put put a glass down or made made a mark on it. And you're right, this is all a period where people are not afraid, they're not in awe, they're not reverential about this book or its contents. And so because of that, we get a whole host of information and insight into people's lives. We get people who are doing little sums or drafting out letters or bits and pieces like that, doing doing sketches, signing their names, uh, as well as, you know, sorting out, pulling out the quotations that they think are most valuable, most interesting, giving a little bit of commentary about whether they think the plays are any good or not. So it's an amazing reception history of, of Shakespeare, but much more as well. Right. And we know
0: of, is it a, a couple hundred copies that are currently known to exist?
1: Yeah, we've got about 230 copies. The uncertainty is that some are really amalgamations pretty much of single leaves. There's oh, mm-hmm. a point this book was so valuable that you could buy a bit like has happened to the Gutenberg Bible as well, you know, a single leaf mm. uh, mm-hmm. or a couple of leaves or something that you could buy. And some of these are are really just sort of put together again from those kinds of quite separated sheets. But, yeah, we've got a good number. And it's a good thing to remind ourselves that this is not a particularly rare book by the standards of the early modern period. It's much less rare than the those individual quarto texts, for instance, which often survived just in two or three copies because they were so relatively fragile and easily lost, easily forgotten about. Whereas this is a big book that's being kept quite safe on library shelves and in many, most cases, actually, is in pretty good condition.
0: Right. So even if you, whatever you thought of it, it, just the size and the weight and the heft of it would suggest you weren't going to be Casually tossing it around, or tearing it up, or just forgetting about it during a move or something. But Absolutely, it would be
1: exactly, yeah, yeah. We've got big books like that, haven't we? We may never even look at them, but they're somehow there. They can't be lost. They're there on the shelf, and there they sit, you know, decade after decade. Uh, and certainly for some first folios, that was also the case. So the size is a really important part of the survival of copies of this book, but also the survival of Shakespeare's reputation and and Shakespeare's availability for performance and and study and so on.
0: Now, I was reading about one first folio that was discovered in, I think, April of 2016, and it had just been uh, found in a house. And then I saw in this article I was reading, it was authenticated by Professor Emma Smith of Oxford University. Uh, So is this something, is this a side gig of yours that they call you in when they find first folios or suspected first folios on a a shelf that's been, uh, or a school library or something?
1: I wouldn't yet say... I wouldn't say it in the plural, but certainly that was uh, that was an e- extraordinary. I think that's probably a once-in-a-lifetime gig. Yes, it's interesting. This was found in a library. You might think that's not very surprising. I found in a, a library of the Butte family uh, on a Scottish island just off the west coast of Scotland. And in fact, to be fair to the Butte family, they were pretty clear that they had it. They felt sure it was a Shakespeare first folio. And they asked me to come and look at it. And I said, I don't believe it is one. I think this is a book that has been so studied. It's been so valuable. We've got all these different lists of from different periods of who owns them and where they are. It's just really not possible that mm. one would be in sight all this time. But anyway, I was persuaded to go and have a look. And I was absolutely and utterly wrong. It was <laughs> indeed a first folio. Interestingly, split into three volumes. The title of the book Master William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies sounds a little bit as if it could be sort of three volumes uh, for those three genres. And in fact, this copy in the 18th century had been split into three. But it was, a, yeah, a pretty amazing experience. Yeah. Did
0: you have any anxiety about that? I Hoaxers are so good. I, I wonder if you felt like you would know it immediately or if there was anything in particular you thought you could look for or if you just could tell from your work... Uh, based on going through lots of first folios before that you would be able to spot it if somebody was trying to uh, invent a new first folio?
1: Well, I did feel very, very nervous about it. And in fact, the reason that the timing of, of the sort of announcement of this discovery was about sort of eight months after I'd first been to look at it, because I needed to make, I knew I didn't have all the information to authenticate. And that's information about watermarks. For instance, we know from all the extant copies, what the range of watermarks are in the jagged print shop paper stocks for this book. So that's a very, very, it's very difficult to, it's pretty impossible actually to fake a watermark, because it's the, it's deep in the composition of the Mm -hmm. paper. You can see it, shining a light through the paper usually. So I didn't have with me, I don't just have on the top, probably somebody does somewhere, but I don't have in the top of my mind what all these watermarks are. So I knew I needed that list, for instance, and various other kinds of documentary lists. So so I needed to go back and do the authentication properly. But I felt absolutely sure when I went that it was going to be a fake and that they were going to hate me forever because Mm -hmm. I was saying... I know it looks like it, but really it isn't, and this is why, and this is why, which was partly why I hadn't want to go and kind of rain on their parade. But the fact that this is the only copy in three volumes done in the 18th century and with a, a note in from a, a very B-list 18th century editor called Isaac Reed, hmm. I thought if you were going to go to the trouble of faking this book, you would probably fake it to look more like... A proper one, all mm. in one volume, that's to say. And if you're going to go to the hassle of faking it, why wouldn't you give it a more glamorous kind of provenance? Why wouldn't you? You'd probably be tempted to overclaim a bit. Uh, so the fact that it was so unusual in its format in these three volumes rather than one was a really early sign to me that perhaps it wasn't the fake that I firmly expected when i walked into the room
2: Mm,
0: that's interesting that that sort of answers a question for me which is what it's like to work with the different first folios that you've seen it suggests that the the sort of commonality they have is their difference
1: absolutely what these books show is the kind of lives they have had for 400 years Mm. you know that. Yeah. They're old ladies now, and they've got great sort of stories <laughs> to tell. And some have had a bit of work done and don't look quite as old as they really are. And some are showing all the age and the experience that they've got. So one of the things I feel, I still feel this, I've seen, I saw about 120 copies when I was working on my book, but I'm carrying on, I've seen a couple this year that I hadn't seen before. I'm going to make a trip to South Africa where I've never been, where there's a copy later in in the summer. And what I always feel about them is just a sense of excitement that you don't know really what you're going to find. And often you can just turn the pages and there doesn't seem to be anything. They seem very clean. And then there's suddenly a part of the book where someone has really gone to town on annotating or, you know, making marks or the shape of a pair of scissors or something that's been left in the book or a pair of glasses or or something so it's just suddenly you know something you turn over the page and and a whole world uh, in which this book was playing a part kind of just emerges uh, for a minute so it's they're brilliantly charismatic books i uh, love working with them and i never feel oh god another first folio
2: mm.
0: so if i gave you the choice between owning a first folio and owning, let's say, a a modern-day set of paperback copies of the Shakespearean plays that are in the first folio. And I said, you only get to own one or the other, the first folio or the paperback copies for the rest of your life, and you're not allowed to resell them. That would kind of tip the scales a little bit toward the first folio. Which would you choose?
1: I think I would choose the first folio,
2: hmm.
1: even though there would be it's a really it's a it's a really difficult question because yeah. if you strip it's a really smart question too, because what you're doing is pointing out that in some ways the contents of this book, as in the formal contents, the plays of Shakespeare, are not presented here in their most usable form. And if what you're interested in is what do these plays say and how might you put them on stage or something, then the modern paperback editions would be much, much better at doing that. So I wonder if that's me talking myself around to saying uh, I would have those modern paperback editions. I can't believe that I would pass up the, the chance to have a first folio. And I think what I would spend my time on is some of the things that editors used to call accidentals or incidental material. That's things like stage directions or the little prefixes before a speech uh, that tell you who is doing the speaking. And these are things which just tend to get edited into conformity, uniformity by modern uh, editions. And they're often very sort of quirky and strange. I think a lot about a stage direction in Coriolanus where the stage direction is the stage is as if it were the roman senate. I think well, that's quite interesting isn't it? It's not it is the roman senate mm. but as if it were. Uh, and some of those little sort of itches I think I would enjoy. So, so I, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to stick with my initial gut reaction which was first folio.
0: Okay, so I gave you the choice of portable magic emphasis on the portable and emphasis on the magic and you chose the latter. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> Okay, Emma Smith, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. And finally, we hear from Luke Parker, author of Nabokov Noir, Cinematic Culture and the Art of Exile. After I talked to him about Nabokov's life in Berlin in the 1930s, I asked Luke to choose the book that he would like to be his last. Okay, we're joined by an expert in Russian and German and Nabokov in particular, Luke Parker, author of Nabokov Noir, Cinematic Culture and the Art of Exile. Luke, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose a book that exists or describe one that has not yet been written.
3: So, this will be the last book you ever read is for a reader is a really heartbreaking <laughs> statement. And it comes with this amazing kind of um, almost like the om- omniscient narrator of our life is yeah, telling, right. telling us this. But it got me thinking about Tolstoy, mm. who in the beginning of Anna Karenina has this amazing kind of godlike voice that says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, right? So this makes me think of, if something is the last book you'll ever read, this is about this transition from life to death. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of thought about ways in which, as Nabokov says, of Pushkin, right? um, A man to whom life and library are one. I think that describes not just Writers and artists, it also describes readers and critics mm-hmm. and book fans, mm-hmm. right? That these works start to kind of mesh with your life. Yeah, right? You know, narrating your life in these terms. But in the end of Anna Karenina there's this incredible sentence that I wanna read to you. So she's spoiler, throwing herself under a train, right? And the final description is and the candle by the light of which she had been reading. That book, filled with anxieties, deceptions, grief, and evil, flared up, brighter than ever, lit up for her all that had once been in darkness, sputtered, grew dim, and went out forever. Mm. For me, I love to read. Mm. My life and library are so, so much one. And yet, I kind of feel like, If I knew these were my last moments, presumably, right, Uh, there's there's somewhat shades of invitation to a beheading and, you know, the executioner with the axe standing over you saying, this will be, you know, your last book, (laughs) like your last meal, right? But but I actually would probably put my books aside. Mm. And I would want to kind of read the book of my life to think about my life. If I could be with those I love with my family, that would be best because you would see your life and your memories reflected on their face, you could talk about those things, you could gather those memories. But if I were moving on to another life, I would definitely want to yeah gather those memories and and think about my life and and not a not be reading someone else's. I have a
0: proposal for you. This just occurred to me. I never thought of this before. But when you were talking about it, it it made me think. You know how people will will describe the experience and say that their, their life passed before their eyes and they, they felt all of their memories all within a second and it was all sort of there and present for them. What if the second before that you could feel all of the books that you've read and it could all be there for you and the feelings you had when you read them and the the joys Mm. that you took and all of that. That could be the the penultimate second and then we could have Mm. the second of our life passing before our eyes. I love that idea.
3: (laughs) I really, I I don't know how one would arrange this, but it's so true. I mean, I, I, I noticed this particularly with audiobooks. This is a kind of a newer phenomenon for me. I, I, I will re-listen to something and I will visualize what part of the trail I was running on mm. at the moment that I was listening to that, what the weather was. I mean, it's like this kind of bizarre association that overlaps. But even before audiobooks, I remember rereading kind of 19th century literature that I had read at a place in the countryside in France when I was a teenager, you know, and it, and it mm-hmm. would just all come back to me. Um, in this really kind of powerful way. So yeah, I mean, I think there is a way in which your experiences and your memories of reading are repositories for moments of your own life maybe caught unawares, right? I mean, you aren't arranging your world to fit the book you're reading, right? You Normally we fit our reading into our life, but it also kind of captures these moments unsuspecting, just happens things that you happen to be doing things that happen to be surrounding you at that moment when you're reading. This is a lot like what Nabokov says about the cinema, is that although there's this kind of somewhat tawdry drama, this hackneyed plot being played out on the screen in the foreground, sometimes in the background the cinematographer will capture trees rustling noiselessly right in the silent cinema or you know the play of light on water some real unplanned piece of life that happens to be captured and preserved unawares and he says that he loves to to find these moments Mm. i see a kind of a a nice analogy with with those moments that are captured by our memories of of reading so sure i mean if you're going to run a Program, you know, the penultimate, uh, (laughs) your life in books flashing before your eyes, I think I'd probably sign up.
2: Luke
0: Parker, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. My pleasure. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Luke Parker for joining me for that. Our discussion and Luke's choice leads us very nicely into our next episode, which is going to be a look at the short story, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Pierce. My thanks also to Emma Smith for being here with me. She's one of my favorite people to talk to with so much knowledge and yet delivered with so much clarity. We are lucky to have her. She's busy with the 400th birthday of the first folio this year. And do check out her books as well. Ahead on the podcast, we will have Don DeLillo soon and Zora Neale Hurston and a look at a pair of literary cities, one in the States and one in Europe, if you'd like a little teaser. We'll have an episode on Chaucer, the man and poet, what's known about him and what can be filled in and how. There's an author with a, a good take on that and a surprising take on Southern Literature with another guest. And we might have a look at The Graduate, the novel, and the film, and lots more besides. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.